The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony, Utah Opera Ghost Light podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and opera and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Israeli director Omer Ben Saadia is our guest today. We are so thrilled to have her with us. She has directed critically acclaimed productions across the U.S. and Canada, and even a few during this pandemic. Previous projects at Utah Opera include a staged concert for the Leonard Bernstein Centennial and a series of newly composed mini operas to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the Golden Spike, a project which she discussed on a season three podcast episode. Omer is in Salt Lake this month to direct our production of La Tragedie de Carmen, Peter Brooks' adaptation of the Bizet classic, and she will return next March for a complete and fully staged version of Puccini's Tosca with chorus and orchestra back in the pit. Omer, thanks for squeezing us into your crazy schedule this week. Of course, it's my pleasure. Omer, it is great to have you back. I think you had to share this little tiny stage with two other guests last time, so this time you get it all to yourself. So really... Glad to I'll have you here. the most of it. Of course. Well, let's start it from the very beginning, because I want people to get to know your background. So tell us about how you got your start in theater growing up in Tel Aviv. Were you originally a performer? And what were your early influences? So um, my father is a theater director in Israel. Uh, my mother studied to be an actress. And so I've been going to rehearsals since I was about four years old. Uh, my dad would pick me up from kindergarten and we would go in lieu of uh, after school activities. Um, and so I hung out in rehearsals with him. And as the years went by, sort of picked up um, all the different skills and all the different trades uh, of the theater world. And I can attest that Omer's father has the most mellifluous, beautiful speaking voice. So I would have loved to hear him on the stage. He sure does. And he's a pretty fine director, I have to say. Well, I love um, when you shared a few years ago, uh, full disclosure, as usual, it seems like I'm always having my friends on the podcast lately, and I'm not mad about that at all, because they're fascinating people. And Omer is no exception. Um, So we're thrilled to have another friend on the cast. Uh, You told me at one point, Robert, you can skip all that if you'd like. Unless it's just delightfully charming. It is delightfully charming. It is delightfully charming. (laughs) Anyway, I love the story that you shared about how you got your start in opera. I think you're probably one of the first people who came at opera in this particular time of their life. And I'm not going to spoil it. So tell me about that. So, right. So after I sort of started um, assistant directing my father and doing lighting and sound and all that kind of stuff with him. When I was about 15, I was in sort of a, a, a youth group, this choir. And one day um, they in rehearsal, they made an announcement that we were all going to be part of an opera. Um, I'd never been to an opera at that point, never seen an opera. An opera was something that my grandmother loved. Um, and so they invited us to take part in this community um production of the Barber of Seville that was all done in Hebrew um, in Israel in an abbreviated way. And I was in it as an actress, as a singer. Um, It was the greatest time uh, ever because I fell in love with this incredible, bizarre art form. 
And then at the ripe old age of 16, right after the show was over, and I was sort of devastated that my life in operas was over, um, I sort of marched my way to the office of the artistic administrator at the Israeli Opera and um, demanded an internship. Um, and little did he know that when he said yes, that he would um, be my boss for the next 10 years to come. And didn't you also explore some opera while you were in the Israeli army? So after I got my internship, I was in high school and we should have come in several times a day and uh, several times a week and on the weekend. And then, you know, I finished high school and then I went into the Israeli army for mandatory service. Um, and um, luck would have it, I got stationed across the street from the opera house uh, in Tel Aviv, which if you know the city, it makes much more sense than what you're imagining, though it is as truly as bizarre as you are imagining as well. Um, <laughs> and so I was in intelligence and I was serving in, a, in an office building and then um, would sometimes have to leave unexpectedly um, to go visit the infirmary, but actually I was sneaking to watch and listen to rehearsals at the opera, um, which it just was very inconvenient that it, it wasn't, uh, my schedule at the army didn't correlate with the rehearsal schedule at the opera, but um, I'd sit in the back of the house and watch and listen to rehearsal. I would scare all of the international directors and conductors because they were like, why is there military in the back of the house watching rehearsal? Um, but it was great fun and it really sort of kept me going through a very, um, a very difficult, um, a very, I should say, um, sluggish uh, military service. Um, <laughs> what otherwise would have been painstakingly boring um, and then, you know, I just kept going, uh, kept working at the opera through my undergrad, um, would run between classes to give tours of the opera house, stuff like that. Um, so it's always, it's always been a thing, uh, a presence in my life. You were, it, it was ordained that you were going to be in this business. Ordained. I, Omer, I don't. I don't know why any of those directors or conductors would have been surprised to see a military person because the Venn diagram between soldiers and opera has a lot of overlap already in the, at least in terms of the subject matter. But I, I think know... they weren't expecting a bespeckled overweight uh, information <laughs> officer to sit in the back. Maybe that was the surprising <laughs> aspect of that. Yeah. Well, I know from Carol that, You've recently mentioned that you see today as a golden time for female directors. And I'm curious what trends you're seeing now that may not have been the case just a few decades ago. What makes you feel that way? Well, I, I mean, I've been sort of fortunate enough um, to come up in this business and to have met incredible women um, both as mentors and as colleagues and now as mentees. Um, but I'm looking around sort of what the operatic industry is looking like. And I see that some of the best work out there is being done by female directors, female identifying directors. Um, you know, I think in general in opera, we're looking at expanding 
our concept of who it is that's telling operatic stories, who it is that is sort of putting their lens and their perspective into the storytelling. And, um, and that so many women in opera have so much to offer, whether they're directing or conducting uh, or in leadership roles, but um, we have a lot to say. And, um, and we've been well-trained um well versed and now um i think it's sort of our golden time to do our thing the next step is to be well represented well trained well versed now well yes. represented yeah yes well represented and allowed to fail um i think up until now it's not that the concept of female identifying directors is new it's just that usually there would only be room for one um, and that one carried the entire gender on her shoulders. And so if um, if she succeeded at a company, um, then they might hire one uh, several years after. Um, and if she didn't, then maybe no female director would work at that company for, for years to come. But now it is our right and our great privilege to fail to be mediocre, to excel and to shine and to be brilliant, to experiment and um, to be different. Um, I think we're all sort of enjoying the fact that because we're no longer the one, um, we get to also have our own taste and have our own feelings and have our own distinct perspective because obviously uh, female directors don't all share the same point of view or the same perspective on things. There is no one uh, female prism in which we all um, look at the world through. So it's great. The more uh, variety of these voices that are coming up, the better it is. Well, I uh, loved reading through your bio. I mean, I say we've known each other for years, but we don't always read each other's press materials, right? Of so, course. So, um, I looked through your bio and I saw three really clear threads, three passions that you have. Development of new works, and you've done a lot of that. And we had a little taste of that with the Golden Spike Project. You love mentoring young up and coming opera professionals, singers, and I'm guessing other talent as well. But also you'd like to take fresh looks at beloved standards of the operatic repertoire. And you're gonna do that with us next year. So what do you do to bring freshness to something like Tosca that maybe we've seen eight or 10 times here at Utah Opera over the course of the seasons? You know, I think that when looking at a classic piece from the repertoire, it really is sort of like a lachmus test of where we are as a society in any given moment. And part of the fun thing about having standard repertoire is that it can change and evolve as we, as a community changes, as society evolves, as our perspective changes, and not to mention my own sort of development as an artist and as a human being. Um, so I love going back to a piece and sort of trying to figure out, okay, so where are we now? How are we looking at this differently? Where am I now in my approach to it? I mean, a perfect example of that is um, uh, the tragedy of Carmen that we're doing right now. And I've wanted to direct Carmen that was the first opera I ever wanted to direct. Uh, it was back in the two and a half seconds that I thought I wanted to sing. Um, I was like, oh, I'll sing Carmen. And then I was like, oh no, singing is not for me. Um, but I definitely, it was the first opera I ever wanted to direct. And I can 
really clock and map out my personal evolution and where we as a society are with the way that I read and interpret that piece now. Um, and that's kind of fascinating. I mean, it's such a, it's like visiting an old friend is sort of going, oh, my God, I've changed so much. Or no, I feel even more strongly about uh, this relationship or this friendship. Um, and with Carmen, um, I think there are so many places about this piece that I feel even stronger about. And there are things that I look back and I go, what, what, what were you thinking? Um, and so the same thing goes for Tosca. I mean, my evolution with that piece um, has a lot to do with the way that I approach um, the, the, the violence in it, um, which has really evolved through the years. I think the way that we sort of approach violence on stage and violence towards women, um, I think has been, has needed to be re-examined through the years. And so now we're realizing that we can't take it casually. We can't take it um, as a, just something that happens or just the ways of the world. And we actually have to take it um, with the full severeness that it was meant to impact us. Um, and that means we sort of have to perhaps look at the staging of it differently in order to make it as impactful. This is good. I'm working out my ideas to, for Tosca as we're, as we're talking. I, I love how you bring up the idea of the violence question in opera and particularly violence against women, because opera is always facing this sort of existential duality in that it is historically based and therefore often out of step. But it's also one of the most facile and interesting ways to make comments on today. Opera is both of those things all the time. And I wonder what other projects you've got coming up now, maybe even some things that were postponed during the pandemic where you can address these and other questions that are on your mind. I mean, you know, and I have to say the, the, the key to sort of re-exploring all these things is for me is not by changing them. So we're not going to change the text. We're not going to change the music. We may decide what repertoire is more interesting for us and what repertoire is less interesting for us to explore. Um, but I find that the confrontation of that is the thing that is going to be very interesting. So um, coming up, uh, I'm directing um, a new production of Thumbprint by Kamala Sankaram and... Um, uh, the new production of the Magic Flute coming up and a world premiere uh, called The Snowy Day and um, and a, a, um, a production of Rigoletto. And in many of these operas, there's an opportunity, in every one of these operas, there's an opportunity to re-examine either something very uh, well known to us that we sort of have to stop ourselves and go, so wait a minute, why is it that we love Rigoletto so much? Why is this piece, why does it continue to have the appeal? But what are the things that we then have to re-examine in it? Or when we look at new pieces, um, how do we, what is essential about them? How do we bring them into the canon? Um, how do we develop the storytelling in them so that they still feel like they're operas and not musical theater or theater or any other genre, but sort of true to the form and all that kind of stuff. I think we can all look at our 
individual lives and also our lives within the organizations that we're a part of and see that we're all this kind of watershed moment. We've had to kind of step back and look at our projects. And I think there's going to be a lot of deciding what's important going forward, what's new that we're going to keep, what's old that we want to refresh. What kind of things besides what you're already talking about with reexamining these big issues do you see as part of the opera world going forward? It's a big question, I know. Well, you know, when we look at, when we when we re-examine repertoire, I think that the other element that we're confronting is the racial prejudice and the racial, um, and the racism that's baked into some of our classic repertoire. And the interesting exploration for me is what are, what are race, racist approaches that we've had or approaches that come from uh, a white supremacist or a, a white centering perspective that can be re-examined? And what are things that are actually baked into the piece and cannot be separated from it? And making that distinction, I think, is going to be really important moving forward so that we don't throw the baby with the bathwater so that we can really sort of um, grab hold with both hands the racist, misogynistic, uh, uh, classist, uh, um, any sort of ableist, ageist approaches and confront it. And what are things that we just go, you know what, maybe this piece can go back on the shelf for a few years and then maybe we might take it off. Maybe we'll change it out with new repertoire and different things. That's okay. I think we're all learning how to also be less precious with our own work and with our own repertoire. And I think that will only suit to benefit us in the long run. Omer, I'm so glad we had you on the show before you did your opera TED talk that is clearly coming, I'm sure, because this is all really incredibly fascinating discussion. Um, before we let you go, and I know you've got a busy day, there's a question that we always ask our opera guests, and I think it's an important way to approach the subject from a different angle. And the question is this, what subject, real, imagined, anything, do you think really needs to be made into an opera? Oh my God, Carol, did I have a good answer about this? I forget now. Did I have an amazing answer? I've been thinking about your answer for a couple of days now, which I fully... She well, loves. it was the steel yes. magnolias. Oh, uh, Carol, Carol, Carol brings up the steel magnolias to everybody. She really wants this opera to be made. I mean, yeah, do. I'm like, and that's the only way, by the way, to get a story made is just by keep telling everyone about it. Correct. And then well, finally, finally, sort of, but just making sure they give you the credit for it. Do you have um, anything as good as steel magnolias, Omer? That's what no, I'm asking. I, I definitely don't. <laughs> I'll tell you what I want as a general thing. Um, uh, I'd love to see original content being um, being uh, worked on for opera. Um, I'd love to see new creative ideas and imaginative stories being told that are not necessarily based on uh, something that already exists in the canon. Uh, I think we can trust our audiences that they will come even if they don't recognize the title. Um, I definitely want to see more operas that feature women um, that are about their experiences, that they're not necessarily about women, but uh, center women. Uh, it doesn't have to be issues that what we sort of quote unquote call women's issues. 
uh, in parentheses, but something that is just about uh, women's existences, uh, women's relationships, their relationships outside of their relationships with men. Um, but I think it's it's time, and this is sort of a call to action to any composers and librettists listening in, um, write your own thing. Write the thing that hasn't been written before. Write the thing that's not based on anything. Um, go wild and crazy. Um, I think that we can push the boundaries in terms of the scale of what we're writing. What I see moving forward are either um, more chamber pieces being written that will work and that are written in um, with having alternative venues in mind. And on the opposite side, I see big, giant, grand opera coming back. Um, I think it's time for us to go back to the big old, big old pieces um, and to have sort of like a, a ruckus time on stage. But I can certainly see those two avenues kind of flourishing in this next in this next adventure. Well, I know we are thrilled that you squeezed us into your day. You're going to go back to the theater and sit in the dark again. And My favorite place. Yes. <laughs> but it is really great to be back in the theater with you and having you back in Utah. And we'll see you again in just a few months, which is. Just yeah. Scary. I mean, this has been such a great adventure, even with sort of we're still in the midst of the pandemic, but to be able to sort of. Um, work our way out of it you know the thing that we've missed the most is sitting together mm -hmm. um, as a community and um, and that has been sorely missed on my end so I'm so happy that we'll get to see an audience in the next couple of days kind of astonished to be honest with you you won't believe it till you see it it's gonna be great. no 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 I might have a slight panic attack when they first come in but <laughs> we'll see well, uh, be sure everyone to visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for information about upcoming performances, live and streamed. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dory Eccles Foundation. <laughs>